let's uh, let's pray, and uh, as we pray, let's ask for God's grace. And the Scripture is clear that uh, if you, though a father, know how to give good gifts to your children, uh, and we do, we love to give good gifts to our children. If our son asks for bread, we're not going to give him a stone, and if he asks for a fish, we're not going to give him a snake. So if though you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Father give you the Holy Spirit as you ask for him? So we need the Spirit of God to take the Word of God, to apply it to the people of God. And, uh, and apart from that, then, then I am no good to you, and uh, we are no good to each other. So let's ask for God to be generous with that. Father, would you uh, honor the Word that you've given to us in your gospel of Luke and give to us your spirit that we might that we might understand the the profound nature of your goodness to us in Christ the consolation of Israel the comfort of the church may our may our minds be filled with the truth of ourselves and and the glory of Christ and, and may, we, may we be a church that finds Christ so glorious and so, so strong, giving us such hope in these days. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You know, the world, the world loves humor. I, lo- I love to laugh. I mean, it's, we love to spin things to a funny end. And, uh, I mean, Hollywood doesn't know a movie except that it turn out well. And um, even in the church, there is a great call for a lighter attitude, more entertaining. Uh, keep it light, keep it fresh, keep it exciting is kind of the rhetoric. And so we really face a dilemma when we come to a text like we have. Because Jesus is going to tell us that it's good to be sad. Um, it seems like an apparent contradiction. The, the beatitude, the second one, in chapter 5 of Matthew, verse 4, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn. And it seems as if he were saying, happy are those who are unhappy. Now, I don't believe it's a contradiction. I do believe it is a paradox. As we've seen, all these beatitudes are paradoxes. And... and I've quoted before uh, G.K. Chesterton, an English journalist in the previous century, said a paradox is a truth standing on its head, screaming for attention. And it's screaming that you don't look at it as you would normally. So this idea of blessed are those who mourn, we don't want to look at it as the world would look at it. We don't want to think, well, it's quoted at funerals all the time, you know, well, God will bless those who are in a time of mourning. I don't, God may and often does, but I don't think it means that. Nor do I think it means blessed are those who mourn. In other words, those who are suffering from bad consequences. Well, this will be a time of mourning, and this will be blessing will come out of this. Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. Uh, others want to look at this as, as someone who, again, kind of similar to last week, who is melancholic in spirit and kind of depressed and forlorn, and God will bless the one who mourns. I don't think it means that. We kind of we make some of these beatitudes and we lump them with other quaint sayings, you know, such as, 
sayings such as um, time heals all wounds or just keep going or this too shall pass. There's grains of truth in those things, but, but that's not what Jesus is saying here. What Jesus is saying is something more profound. And one author asked this question of the text. He says, what kind of sorrow can it be that brings the blessings of Christ to those who have it? Let me ask that again. Uh, what kind of sorrow, what kind of mourning can it be that brings the blessings of Christ to those who have it? So that's the question. It, it's not the loss of a loved one. It's not the loss of a job. It's, it's, it's the personal sin that we have before God. It's, the acknowledge, it's more than acknowledging I'm a sinner, but it's recognizing that my sin is against a God that I ought to love. It's more than, it's more than confessing or admitting these things, but it's recognizing and seeing my sin in light of God and just being ashamed of it and, and mourning over why did I just do that? How could I behave that way before such a great God? who has offered me all things, why would, I, why would I look at that or do this or say this? And, and there's, there's a mourning, it's a visceral feeling that, that is felt in the heart and, and tears to the eyes. You know, when you hold something, our actions that are so darkened to the, to the brilliant purity of God and just, and just think, oh, you, you know that, that feeling that fills your soul like, oh, God, have mercy on me. That's what Jesus is saying. It, it's a mourning over your sin. It's not, it's not attrition. It's not this idea of I'm embarrassed now that you really know about me. It's not, gee, what's going to, now that that's exposed, what are they going to think about me and they're not going to respect me? It's not that. It's not, oh, boy, the penalties are going to come now. I, I, I wish I hadn't been exposed because now the brunt of, discipline or rebuke or some sort of penalty is going to be. It's not that. It's a deep sadness. We surely wouldn't laugh about it. You know, in Luke's gospel, in the Beatitudes, he takes the opposite approach. He says, woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn later. In other words, when we laugh at things that ought to cause sadness and, and mourning and sorrow in light of God now, remember, it's not a horizontal sadness really sorry I hurt you. It's recognizing that all my sins are against God. This kind of sadness is seen in the psalmist. In fact, we sang it in Psalm 130. He says, out of the depths I cry to you, O God. Think of that picture. Out of the depths I cry to you. This person is well convinced of their brokenness. They know their brokenness. And they know that God knows their brokenness. And they know that God knows that God thinks about their brokenness. He says, out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. Hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? Could any of us stand before God? You know, that Paul said the same thing when speaking about the Corinthian church. He had been away, and it's in his second letter. He knows that they have fallen back into sin, and he's actually grieving for them. He says this. He says, I'm afraid that when I come again, I'll be grieved over many who have sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual sin and debauchery. You, you have this idea of, of now it's not just my personal sin, but there's a collectiveness of this church that when you're in sin, I ought to be grieving. We see it in Nehemiah. We see it in Daniel. 
We see it in Ezra. When Ezra gathered all the people before the temple, the regathering of Israel, here's what he says. Or the narrative, it says, While Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping, casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel. But the people wept bitterly. So, so when you look at the first beatitude, it's this moral bankruptcy that leads us to humility. But now the second beatitude flows from that. It's the sorrow over sin that leads us to repentance. Nobody's repenting before they're morally bankrupt. If you don't humble yourselves recognizing you've got nothing to bring to God except the sin that you're mourning over. That's what we give them. And that's what he's saying, the mourning over sin. Now listen, the, the, the world doesn't know this mourning. The, the world grieves, without a doubt. The world grieves and mourns. And, and you can see people grieving, you know, in some of the, the Middle East conflict that we have right now. You see people grieving greatly. But, but it, there, there is a grieving that can take place without sin. There is a grieving without reference to God. It, it, it's concerned over the horizontal impact. But, but for many people here, there's a grieving apart from sin. That when you remove God from the equation, you remove him as a creator with authority over our lives. And, and you remove him from being able to have a demand of holiness. Now, we all admit sin. 84% of Americans agree to the idea of sin. Only 17% agree that it's against God. In fact, 35% of born-again believers do not think that God demands holiness from people. That You've got to believe in Jesus, and you've got to ask him in your heart, and you've got to be saved. But, but holiness isn't a factor in that equation. And so when you remove God from the picture of grieving, then man floats to the first order of importance and he begins to redefine sin. He begins to joke about sin. He begins to determine what's right and what's wrong. And that's what we see in the church today. That there is this, there is this you move God to the side, you make him a bit player just to save me from hell and I'm going to live my life the way I'm going to live it and then we get to call the shots because there is no God in the equation. In fact, Richard Niebuhr, uh, a theologian, uh, in the last century, said, Sin is the unwillingness of man to acknowledge his creatureliness and dependence upon God and his effort to make his own life independent and secure. So, so, so grieving in the context of Scripture is over our personal sin before and against, mind you, a holy God. And, and do you grieve over your sin? Amazing question to ask yourself. What do you grieve over? What makes you sad? And, and, and correspondingly, what makes you happy? And what would that reveal about you? Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher, uh, mid-19th century, says, if you can look on your sin and sorrow, excuse me, if you can look on sin without sorrow, then you have never looked at Christ. It's pretty profound. See, the ethic of the kingdom that we are being taught here in the Sermon of the Mount is that we, we understand, we grieve, the church grieves over her sin, both individually and collectively. That, that we're mindful, not just to say, I'm a sinner, but my sin is leading me to a place of deep sadness before God. 
and, and deep travail and, and even weeping over God and over my sin. That, that when, when, we, when we as a church uh, begin to just say, I'm a sinner, that, that isn't, that's a dangerous gap in my mind. It's a dangerous gap to be able to say, well, I'm a sinner, but not be sorrowful over it. I mean, think about it for a minute. When you, are, when you act with, with hard selfishness to your spouse, when you lie to your parents, uh, when you deceive in telling a story, uh, when you just straight up uh, falsify the facts so as to not look as bad, when, when, you, uh, you know, when you act so put out when people don't appreciate you, do you ever see those things as against God or are they the low-level sins? Does it cause you to... Un- do you understand that you sin against God when you do that? I mean, when you yell at your wife, do you understand that's against God? But when you harbor angerness and bitterness towards it, when you won't forgive somebody because they haven't responded to you in the right way, when you, when you won't return love to them because you're going to just make them pay a little bit more, do you realize that's against God? That's the ethic of the kingdom. We are people who mourn. Like David, against you only have I sinned. Obviously, David sinned against a load of people. But he's expressing the mourning and the sorrow of his heart. Okay, so this blessing... Or sorry, this morning over sin, though, is not just personal. It's also corporate. I, I want you to think with me. As particularly in the Old Testament, Israel would mourn over the national failure of Israel to be the people of God. They would mourn over the wicked prospering and the righteous suffering. They would mourn over the innocent's suffering. You, you know those innocent people that are just caught up in the, in the devastating effects of sin. That, that we as a church, the, the ethic of the kingdom is that we mourn over the sins of the world. Do you not mourn over the conflict in Syria? Over 20,000 people. Think about all the families that are touched. Or you think back in history, Stalin, how many people died under his reign? I mean, th- this is the global, the, the, um, the consideration of a world that is in opposition to God and refuses to bow the knee to God. This is what you have. This is what we got. I I, I mean, this ought to cause us to mourn, not just for the horizontal suffering, but that God's glory and God's beauty and God's loveliness is ignored. It's it's rebuked. It's rejected. It's dismissed. We don't want anything to do with it. I mean, it's profound. Sometimes I'll sit and I'll just try it in my mind, Historically speaking, go through the suffering of the ages, and can you imagine? It's just overwhelming. I, I almost feel like I'm, I'm suffocating by the nature of suffering. We're to mourn that. See, the world doesn't understand how to handle this kind of suffering. David Wells, in his book, Courage to be Protestant, talks about the world lives in houses with windows, but no skylights. There's no vertical dimension to their understanding. So the world doesn't know what to do with sin. They don't even call it sin. The world has moved to using the terminology of something that's evil. Evil is bad, we know that, but there's no attachment necessarily to God. And and this idea of the world, we want to throw either economic opportunities at problems, business opportunities. We want to enact legislation. I mean, if you haven't but lived 25 years, Every tragedy, what do you hear? 
we've got to enact another law to fix this problem. Uh, are we going to just, we're just going to legislate ourselves out of suffering and problems? It, it just doesn't happen. They, they, have, they have no skylights, so they see no God. And they've cut themselves off from the very comfort that this beatitude offers. But see, the Christian, the Christian ethic is to mourn over this and appeal to God. Now, I want to remind you, the Christian ethic usually is to condemn the wickedness of the world, to condemn the sin. We are excellent at condemnation of all these things. We don't mourn. So you read the paper, either a political page or some tragedy on the splashed across the pages of the paper, and there's kind of this anger or frustration or we've got to get this person out of office or we have to get these thugs off the street. But do we ever stop and just, God, have mercy on us. We are in trouble. We need your comfort. We need your grace. This is what the Christian does. God, your, your glory is being rejected time and time again. Does that ever cause you to mourn? It would cause me to mourn if Carol's name was thrown under the mud if I know her as I do to be a very holy woman, and someone trashed her name, it would hurt me because I know it's not true. Does it hurt us when people are so dismissive of God? Doesn't it you know, move you? God, have mer- not to bring condemnation first, but to have mourning first. Okay, so this is the wisdom of God, that we, the church, would be a people who mourn over personal sin and corporate sin. Personal sin in our own lives. We want to mourn over that. In fact, Isaac of Syria, who was a desert father of the 4th century, he said, greater is the man who can mourn over his sin than the man who can raise the dead. It's profound. Why? Well, because mourning over sin is the doorway into salvation. There is no salvation apart from moral bankruptcy leading to sin, recognition, recognition of sin, and moving to repentance. So look at the comfort that Jesus seeks to bring here. Because it's important you get the first part. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now look at the comfort. If you remember, I read from Isaiah 61 last week, and I'm going to read from that passage again. Because he's going to speak about not just good news to the poor, but also comfort to the mourning. Here's what he says. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God that will be there, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, The mourning of ashes upon your head will be replaced with the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they might be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. So in other words, that this is a promise of the Messiah coming who would be a comforter. You will notice that when Jesus speaks about the Holy Spirit, he says, another comforter I will send you. Who is the first comforter? It is Jesus Christ. And that's why in Luke, the Gospel of Luke chapter 2, when Simeon, who's waiting there for the Messiah, he sees him, he sees the consolation or the comfort of Israel. This Jesus is the one who speaks comfort, and it's because it's Jesus who's going to bring comfort. 
And he brings comfort by bringing forgiveness to us. The comfort of the mourning soul, the only thing that you can satisfy a soul mourning over their sin is forgiveness. That is the, that is the need. It's not education. It's not better jobs. It's not greater health. God, you must forgive me. The, the, the sin and the deceit and the lies and the lust. I mean, all those things washed away in the forgiveness of Christ. This is not wish fulfillment here. This isn't just trying to deal with the guilt that we have in life. This, is, this promise of comfort is grounded in the objective reality of a cross. This is the nature of the gospel. Folks, this is why we, we are Christ-centered, because in the gospel, all of our sins, that which we're mourning over, have been placed upon the Son. This, if you believe, is what makes you a Christian. All of our sins placed upon the Son. And then God's just wrath and fury punishing the sin so that he maintains his justice, just like every single one of you would want justice done if you had a crime committed against you. The justice falls on the Son. He bears the sin. He bears the penalty. And he is there in our stead as our substitute so that our sin goes to him His righteousness and the forgiveness of God declares us as innocent before God. That's profound. That God would grant to us a son through whom we have forgiveness, as Ephesians tells us. Think about it. The guilt removed, the despair moving to delight, forgiveness leading to thanksgiving. Let let me remind you of a picture in Scripture. And it's in Luke chapter 7. I I just want to tell you the story because I think it's beautiful. But you have this woman who's a prostitute. Now, a prostitute uh, is, of course, selling herself just to men who will pay her for sex. She has a life of this. You can imagine just the accumulated weight of despair on her soul. I mean, just the filthiness that she must feel. I mean, just the absolute worthlessness of who I am as a person with all that sin that she has. And she she hears Jesus preach. The the presumption is that Jesus had preached in the town because she goes to him while eating at the house of a Pharisee named Simon. And she goes to him, and she doesn't say anything. And oftentimes, at visiting dignitaries, other people would listen around the table so that they can hear these educated men. And so oftentimes it was kind of semi or open to the public. And so she goes there. She's filthy. She's not cleaned up. Her, her clothes would look like she was a prostitute. She would be known in the town as a prostitute. And so she comes to Jesus, and, and she starts weeping on his feet, just crying. And then dragging her hair across his feet, drying his feet. And, of course, Simon now, the Pharisee, the righteous one in his eyes, looks at her and looks at Jesus and begins to say, well, this guy's really, he had some good answers, but he really isn't the man we thought he was. He goes, look, there's a prostitute, for goodness sake. He doesn't shoo her away. What are you, what are you doing here? I mean, you're a sinner, for goodness sake. We're talking about God. What, what would we want to do with a sinner here? As crazy as that is. And so he tells Simon the parable, of course, and let me read it to you. He says this, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two men owed money to a certain moneylender. 
One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he canceled the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? He canceled the debts of both. Which will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. And Jesus says, you've judged correctly. And so looking at the woman, he says, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. So he said to her, your sins are forgiven. I mean, can you imagine? She was weeping over the forgiveness that Christ had. Christ had come into town, and he had preached repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. He's preaching that. She's thinking, if the kingdom of God is here, I'm a sinner, what am I going to do? She repents, she's forgiven. There is a proclamation of forgiveness given. So the comfort that Jesus has come to bring is forgiveness for us. Folks, do you know the joy of this forgiveness? Have you tasted of this forgiveness? My fear for many of you is because you have never mourned deeply over the sin, your love for the forgiveness is as shallow as your mourning. But if your mourning is deep and profound, when you consider the radical holiness of God leads you down into a valley of despair, but the words of Christ comforting you draw you up to the mountain peak of joy and satisfaction. Martin Lloyd-Jones, another great British preacher in the mid-19th century, mid-20th century, excuse me, said that a deep doctrine of sin leads to a deep doctrine of joy. Don't be like David. In Psalm 32, when he failed to acknowledge his sin before God, he said, my bones dried up and wasted away as in the heat of summer. Don't be that way. The call is to hear the words of Christ, to receive the comfort of forgiveness through faith in Christ. David Brainerd, you know, we've done a sermon on him a number of years ago. He was the first American missionary, uh, sorry, the first American missionary to the American Indians. And um, in his diary, he wrote this on October 18 of 1740. He wrote these words. He says, my soul is exceedingly melted and bitterly mourned over my exceeding sinfulness. He had been a believer for years. And his vileness. I never before had felt so pungent and deep a sense of the odious nature of sin as at this time. So, so he's dealing with the reality of who he is before God. He says, my soul is then unusually carried forth in love to God. And I had a lively sense of God's love for me. And this love and hope at that time cast out all fear. In other words, do you see what he's calling us to do? He's saying this, that if you don't mourn over your sins, you're denying yourself the very love that God has for you. So the same God that you're supposed to be mourning before is the same God who's going to come and comfort you with forgiveness and his love, casting out all fear that he would ever push you away from himself. Happiness is in mourning. That's the crazy thing about these Beatitudes. Moral bankruptcy leads to riches. Absolute mourning over sin leads to happiness. I, I, I read this book, A Happy Old Age, and it's a great book written by this pastor of the um, 19th century. Here's what he says about how to be happy. And, and let me read you the context. Because uh, he says, the question is, how to, be, how to make your deathbed a happy bed? Do you love it? How do you make, so don't be surprised when I come to you if you're sick or something. I'm going to say, let's make this bed a happy bed. 
How to make your death. They dealt with sin. They dealt with death. We weren't worried about draping white over everything. They, they dealt with the reality. They were hauling their uncle out, burying him in a hole that day. They dealt with death well. He said, here's how to have a happy deathbed. He said, you must be brought to feel the guilt of your sin before God. Many acknowledge this in words, but they don't thoroughly feel it in their hearts. But if the Holy Spirit awakens your soul, if you are really brought under blessed influence, then you will not merely speak of being a sinner. You will feel it, and that deeply. And the burden and the guilt of sin. What a difference there is between the cold acknowledgement that you and all the world have sinned and the deep conviction of sin, which leads you to cry out in agony, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He says, then, he says, there can be no real happiness until you have felt your misery and had it removed. Your wound must be probed and laid open before it can be healed. And is not this a blessed misery if it leads to such happiness? Have you felt this? I mean, have you considered the nature of this forgiveness? Well, well, there's more comfort here, actually. I'm speaking about the comfort that comes now. You notice in the future tense, you notice in the, in the uh, Beatitude, it's blessed are those who mourn, they will be comforted. There's also a future aspect that I want to draw your mind to for a minute. And the future aspect is that the Christian life has a degree of mourning and sorrow over sin, but it also has an eye cast to the next life. And the eye is cast for when this comfort will be in its fullness. In other words, when all sin will be fully washed away. I mean even from your minds. Memories restored. Purity restored. I mean the savagery of the world undone. I mean all the the litany of sins that still dog me in my mind. Not producing guilt, but just sadness. Why did I have to go that route, God, when you were so glorious? And pleasures were at your right hand, and I, I just forsook those for these. Paul says it this way. He says, we know the whole creation is groaning together in the pains of childbirth. They're groaning under sin until now. He says, not only creation, but we ourselves, who are the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, redemptions of our bodies. You know, uh, Tolkien summed this up well in his book, Lord of the Rings. If you've read the book, there's a, stu- there's a part of it where Gandalf uh, is presumably dead. He's kind of the leader. He's um, kind of the, the, the savior, if you will, a lot of these uh, characters. And uh, I'm not going to say it's a tiger, by the way. I, I moved off of C.S. Lewis. I'm never <laughs> quoting that again. I'm going to somebody different. For those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, it was a, it was a, a burned-down Tom moment is what it was <laughs> in front of all your friends. Anyways, in this scene, Gandalf comes back to life. He's restored to life. Now the picture of the resurrection. And now life is going to be different with Gandalf. Now he's been to the other side. He's back. Everything's going to be great. So here's what the character says. He says, is everything sad going to come untrue? In other words, I was pressed this week to try to put it into words. How do you explain to people who are suffering now that it doesn't just, it's not, a, it's not God, God patting us on the head, it's going to be okay. He undoes it. He makes it untrue. It's as if it didn't happen. 
I mean, the restoration is so far beyond our understanding of restoration. I mean, it's a new creation. I mean, we are made new. This is the comfort that we're going to have. I mean, does that give you hope? I mean, I think about some of you that carry deep, deep regret. And you know you've been forgiven. You, you, You weep when you sing the song, A Fount of Blood, and you think, Plunge me beneath that blood. Plunge me. I, I, I want to have forgiveness. But, but you still know, but I did these things. And, and uh, my kids may ask me about them. And, and they're still in my memory. But, but what a day. What a day that will be when he will wipe away every tear. There will be no more death, crying, mourning, or pain. The old order of things has passed away. It, it's a day that the Christian is to hang on to. It is not a pie-in-the-sky attitude because it's grounded in objective reality that Christ has already died and already been raised. And he says in Revelation that I, I hold the keys of death in Hades. I was dead, but I'm alive forevermore. So it's grounded in something objective, and it's to give us hope in the midst of our mourning. That, that, that's a hope for us. Now, do you feel that hope? Do you think about that? Do you long for the day when you'll see the Lord and he'll cleanse you, he'll restore you, he'll make everything sad untrue? Now, now for some of us here, I, I don't know that you've mourned. I, I do feel that there's a gap uh, often in the church. And, and I know that for the non-Christian, the man without God, the man without mourning, is the man who has to find comfort from somewhere. And you're going to find, you'll search it, you'll face the despair of your own sin, or you'll face the despair of what the world's coming to. You will face it, age will force it upon you, events will come to you, you don't need to look for it, it will come to you. And and what man without Christ does, is he turns to, again, government, and he sees the government as a savior. I'm going to be speaking about the nature of government before our election, just to get us all on the same page. Government will never, ever, ever save you. It cannot save you. Others turn to relationships. If I just get a new wife or I get a new girlfriend, or it turn to money or turn to success, well, look at all that I've done. I mean, all these things are temporary fixes for an eternal issue. For those without Christ, there is no comfort other than Christ. I have nothing to offer you other than Christ. But I do invite you I do invite you that if you are burdened, if you are despairing, if you need comfort, that you would turn to Christ. There is no magical way to turning. It is by faith. You turn, you pray in your mind, Jesus, save me, comfort me, deliver me, bring me to the Father, cleanse me of my sins, give me a greater appreciation for all that, it, all that you've done. You can't do this. The Holy Spirit has to awaken you. But the Holy Spirit is moving. And the way you know the Holy Spirit is moving, you begin to think these things that you haven't thought before. You begin to consider sin in a way that you haven't thought before. You begin to see God in in a different light, a more glorious light. These are things that begin happening to the person as God is beginning to move so that they'll turn to him by faith and belief. And I would encourage you to do that. If you've never mourned over your sin, I will say to you, you have a problem. If you have not considered your sin as before God, holy and righteous, and it's led you into despair of your sin, then you'll never have the comfort from God. You won't have it. He's going to preclude you from having it so that you have it rightly in Christ. And if there are anybody here that is struggling with that, you want to come up, righteous, it's an elder, Nick, Luke, the other elders, myself, please seek us out. 
Because if the Spirit is drawing you, you'll come. You'll come find us. Now, to those who struggle, and you say, well, Tom, I am a believer, and I, I, I do feel as if I did. I, I remember coming to Christ, and, and, and the, the forgiveness was beautiful, and it was real, and it was powerful, but, but I, I really don't look at sin as you are explaining it. So what can I do? You know, I, I want us to be a church. Remember, we don't have to have an evangelism campaign if we just do the Sermon on the Mount. And remember, in, Ma- in Matthew chapter 7, 24, he says, if you hear and obey these words. So he, Jesus presumes we can do them. And so if we do them, we'll be so different, people will be asking us about Christ. You won't need tent revivals because they'll be coming to you. You'll be so different if you mourn your sin, finding comfort in Christ. So here's how we develop it. Because I want us to be like a hand to a hot stove, recognizing the nature of sin. And the first thing I would have you consider, and I'll put these up in the web. Uh, Nick posted them on Saturday from last week, if you were looking for them. These kind of application points we'll put back on the web uh, sooner than we did last time. That was my fault. Um, Okay, the first thing is to consider the holiness of God. That, that, That you would take time today. It's raining. You can't go outside. Um, I believe we're going to be postponing the baptism for one week, and we'll give you news on that. But you have time this afternoon. Think through the incredible nature of God. Without spot, wrinkle, blemish, pure, white, beautiful, in every way, glorious. Consider him, and then look at yourself. And and let that humble you. Like Isaiah said, or sorry, um, yeah, in Isaiah 53, Sorry, Isaiah 6. Here's Isaiah speaking. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. God is so holy he cannot be seen. Feet are, of course, part of our body that we cover in respect to the honor of the one that we are before, says, and they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Just picture this scene in real time. He says, Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined. I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Think through the nature of God. People, you will not grow in spirituality just by it happening to you. You're to put off, you're to put on. So consider the holiness of God. But, but secondly, I would also ask you to consider the nature of sin as against God. And, and this is really important. Um, I think we live in a culture that adjusts and accommodates and accepts sin. Uh, I, I don't want you slipping into thinking that sin is some moral lapse, error in judgment, or, or just bad timing. You, you need to think of sin as it is, not in these amoral terms. You know, it's one thing if I miscut a board too short. That may be an amoral issue. But lying, cheating, stealing, yelling, harboring bitterness, anger, that's a sin. And it's against God. And, and please, don't try to categorize sins. You know, you say, well, rape, adultery, and murder, th- those are the ones I'm trying to avoid. Don't give passing glance to unforgiveness and bitterness and selfish and anger. Those are just as deadly 
avoid embracing the rhetoric of this day in terms of dealing with sin. As long as they're in love, well, no one's hurt. They're consenting adults. Who are we to judge? Think about that. All those expressions, which I know probably have come out of your mouth at one time, they're all atheistic in nature. They all sever the relationship that God has as creator over creatures. They make life flat and horizontal, and they deny God his rightful place. Please don't look at your sin and say, well, you know, you value your sin based upon its impact. Well, nobody's really hurt by it. Oh, God is offended by it. Ralph Venning, an old Puritan, wrote these words. He says, consider that no sin against a great God can be strictly a little sin. So consider the nature of this. Don't soft-pedal the sin in your life. Look at it for what it is. Okay, second, thirdly, I would remind yourself to consider the outworking of your sin. In other words, if I entertain this lust, what will it lead to? Think through what is the outworking. So I remember a pastor who would keep in his desk a list. If he committed adultery, this is what would happen. Okay, A, he would lose his children, at least the respect, if not just shame the children, wife, family, his parents, then her whole family has a litany of, uh, of casualties associated with that. And he just detailed them all out and said, okay, if I want to do that, this is what I got coming. Do I really want to do it? Th- th- there is wisdom in reminding yourself. I mean, that's what the writer of Proverbs, uh, Luke reminded me of Proverbs 5. He says, and now sons, listen to me. Don't depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her and do not go near the door of her house. Lest you, give her your, lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless, lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. In other words, think through what you're doing. It's not just adultery, it's bitterness. It's your unforgiveness to people. It could be harboring anger. It could be, it could be a host of things. But if you're going to do this, what's it going to lead you to? And do you want to be there at the end? Most of us would say, no, I don't want that. Well, then begin to look at it as getting you around your neck. Okay, then, and then fourth, repent daily for your sins. I said this last week, but I, I want to say it again to you. You know, when you each day, there ought to be a time, at least some regular practice, where you're inspecting the spheres of your life. You're looking at your personal life. You're looking at your marital life. You're looking at your family life. You're looking at your church life. You're looking at your community life. And you're saying, have I walked in godliness in these relationships? And where have I acted with anger? Where have I acted in self-promotion? Where have I acted with self-defense? And, 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 and then repent of those things. It's very humbling, very helpful for you to see the nature of sin. That we repent of these things. And repentance, again, isn't just admitting you've done wrong. God already knows that. You know that. But it's the sorrow that God has been offended by. And, and, then, and then it involves giving verbal Word that you would express your sorrow and seek the forgiveness of the one that you've sinned against. That you would do that verbally. Don't, don't just say, hey, I'm sorry, I was really mean the other day. Repa- say, would you please forgive me, honey? I was acting selfishly and I raised my voice to you because I didn't want to be bothered. And, and that just shows you my need for the gospel. So give word to it, express it, and bring it to a conclusion. You know, Martin Luther nailed those 95 uh, theses to the door trying to reform the church. Do you know what the first thing he wanted the church to do? The first thing? Practice daily repentance. 
is calling the church to practice daily repentance. I'm doing the same. And then last and most importantly, I, I would ask you to remember the glory of Christ, that you would, when you do look at your sin, you look at God, you look at your sin, you see the, the nature of it, the ugliness of it, and, and then you would then uh, repent of it and then turn to Jesus. I cannot encourage you um, that despair always leads to delight when you consider the cross, that, that, that when you're weighted down with your sin, that you would look to Jesus who has paid for every sin. I, I can do no better than what Robert Murray McShane wrote. He says, learn much of the Lord Jesus. For every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. He is altogether lovely. Live much in the smiles of God. Bask in his beams. Feel his all-seeing eye settled on you in love. And repose in his holy arms. So this is why these beatitudes are benedictions, they're blessings, they're beautiful, they're glorious, because they lead us down to where we really are, but then God lifts us up to where he really is. Let's take a few minutes. I'll initiate in prayer, and then you can pray for a few minutes and give word to how God has instructed you through his spirit, and then David will close us in just a moment. Father, thank you for your grace to me, uh, strengthening me for this word. Lord, let mourning take place uh, so that gladness may follow in Christ.